Securities offered through Securities America, Inc. Member FINRA and SIPC. Advisory services offered through Securities America Advisors, Inc. Investors Advantage and the Securities America companies are separate entities. The opinions and forecasts expressed are those of the author, may not actually come to pass, and should not be construed as a recommendation of any security or investment plan. Past performance does not guarantee future results. Welcome to Fiscal Fitness with your hosts, John Grace and Daniel Medina. They have all the questions about investing, planning, retirement, and the future. You could say it's all they live for. While it can seem daunting getting everything sorted out and the important questions answered, they'll do their best to make it that much easier. Now, here's John Grace and Daniel Medina. Welcome, folks, to this beautiful Wednesday afternoon, kind of cloudy. We've had hail. We've had rain. It's been interesting here in Southern Cal. Uh, it hasn't dropped to a zero or below 10, so we're, we'll continue paying the weather tax. Delighted you could spend some time with uh, us. Uh, that would be, of course, John Grace and my cohort in crime, Daniel Medina, my main math man here on uh, Fiscal Fitness at Voice America. And, and we like talking about not only what's going on, but what does it mean to you? And what do you need to be prepared for? We particularly like putting light or, you know, the high beams on the road around the corner so that you can get a sense for what's coming, whether or not it shows up. You love it on your car, right? When it informs you that three miles ahead, there's an accident. What do you do? You just pay more attention. I like the advance notice as opposed to coming up upon the accident and now everybody's slamming on their brakes and causing another accident. So we don't want to participate in those kinds of events. They're not fun and sometimes they can be final and we're not done yet. So we don't want it to be final. We want to be able to tell our story. So we've got a number of things to discuss uh, with you this afternoon. And we're going to look at, uh, this is interesting, that most um, retirees find retirement just doesn't live up to their expectations. Really? <laughs> Are you kidding me? I reach retirement and then I'm disappointed in retirement? What's wrong with this picture? So we'll, uh, we'll address that and maybe have some suggestions as to you know what you can do so that you can meet your expectations or at least have a different set of expectations so that you can retire. And, and, and notice that sometimes people have certain ages that they intend to retire or they intend to work forever. And the interesting thing as far as that equation goes is that too often we find that it is the situation relative to health that causes one or both of the people in the same couple to retire early. So one has to take care of the other. That comes as a great surprise. And it just means that one has to stop working and doing what they enjoy to care for the other or care for themselves. So it seems as though the, the great impediment when we're talking about accidents, for example, is that there's an accident. Nobody expected that to happen. But now one person isn't as healthy as they used to be. And the other person has to care for them which means both people are now not working and you've got a whole new ball game going on. And then we're gonna to get to a, an interesting subject on something my friend Rick Edelman calls retirement bonds. Uh, looking at how to make sure people are putting together a financial plan well before they turn 40, right when the baby's born. Get your social security number, get your, your, uh, your phone <laughs> and get your retirement plan. That's not a bad idea because you can make it take advantage of all the time that you have. Most people, it seems here in America, 
wake up, if you will, mid-40s to go, uh-oh, <laughs> I can see I won't be working forever, and now I have to begin my retirement plan, which, of course, means that they missed a whole lot of time if they had started in their 20s or when they got their first paycheck. Think of it that way. So that we will be looking at. And then we want to address something that we see a lot. And that is uh, people are always looking for an easy and a quick answer. And one of the easy and quick answers that retirees often think they have found is, oh, let's just buy some rental properties and live off the income. So we'll look at the pros and cons of that because um, uh, privately landlords just don't always see they are earning lower returns on their investment. They're not keeping the investment um, in under the same category as how a business would operate, doing the same thing, buying a piece of property and renting it out. Uh, they don't prepare for, you know, they, they forget about taxes. They don't uh, prepare for possible rent control, ordinary expenses, changing weather conditions, like in Texas, for example, or the wild winds and the wildfires we get here, particularly in, in California. So we'll be looking at that because, in fact, Daniel, I was just talking to a person says, well, we expect to have the house paid off in two or three years. And, you know, this isn't a, a rental home, it's their primary home, but they're assuming that the stock market and the house will continue to see the kind of gains that they've enjoyed over the last 10 years. They don't have any kind of alternative plan. You know, what's your backup plan? You're, you're really invested in believing that both are going to continue to go up on your time frame. And we know, you know, how's it go? Uh, man plans and God laughs. So <laughs> we want to have people with the backup plans and more ways to get the job done as opposed to only one road to get to from point A to point B. So let's begin with what we do every week. And that is uh, kind of give you a perspective of what the markets are doing. And, and of course, we have to do things differently. That's just how Daniel and I have to do things differently, not like everybody else. Everybody else just talks about the stock market today and what's driving it one way or the other. That's interesting, but it doesn't help you get a appreciation for the trends. And one way to get some idea of what the trends are is to look at the stock markets in, in with a greater, a larger lens, if you will, or with, with more time. So the way we look at it is let's, let's make sure we pay attention to what's going on so far this year. So we always talk about uh, the Dow, for example, Big day for the Dow, up one and a half percent at 32,329. Uh, I mean, the uh, year-to-date return, one one through today in real time, because the markets haven't closed yet, that happens in about, what, 52 minutes, is up 5.7%. I mean, just think about that number as compared to the cash that you have, <laughs> where there's no potential for it to be up 5.7%. But here we are, as of the 10th of March, right, not even 90 days in, up 5.7%. And let's remember, it wasn't that long ago, probably long before Daniel arrived on the scene, but 5.7 could have been a CD rate that you were very, very comfortable with. And that means you had to have the money in there for a whole year. This can go either way. We understand that. And we like looking at both sides of that equation. But still, January 1 through March 10th, 5.7, that's not bad. Now, that's the Dow. Then we like to look at the Standard & Poor's 500, primarily because it's probably a better indicator with 500 stocks of what's going on in the economy or certainly with the stock market, as opposed to the Dow being limited to 30 stocks. And it's almost in the same ballpark, not as big a day, but it's up about 4.08% uh, 
year to date. And then NASDAQ, you'll recall, this is kind of interesting because NASDAQ was clearly the road to riches last year. And so far this year, uh, the NASDAQ is up a whopping 0.37, that's 37 basis points today. And for the year, it's up a whopping 1.63%. Interesting thing about NASDAQ this year, as we watch this, it has fluctuated between being negative for the year and slightly positive. So there appears to be a number of things going on. Uh, and, and, and what we see is that the major U.S. benchmarks remain in divergence modes. In other words, each index seems to be doing something different. And this is amid an uneven price action environment. So you're looking at value stocks apparently outperforming growth stocks. So value may be represented by Dow. Growth stocks might be better represented by NASDAQ. This is all the tech companies, right? Right now, it looks like uh, the uh, we've, we've flipped from being interested in more growth and being interested in more value. And that's where that upside has uh, seemed to occur so far this year. But as we say, you know, enjoy the melt up, right? Everybody loves seeing positive numbers. And I would submit, uh, and I think Daniel would agree, that oftentimes that causes us to become complacent and we don't prepare for the potential downside. That's where we focus. Let's look at the worst case scenario. That's what we've learned a lot from the, the uh, rocket scientists and, uh, and the electrical engineers that we've had the pleasure of working with. They don't look at how, what's the best scenario. They're not overly optimistic. They're overly, or maybe not overly, but they, I think they, they operate in, in the, the domain of being realistic. Show me all the sides of the coin, including the corner and the edge, all right? Let's see the best case. Let's see the worst case. If I can live with the worst case, probably I'm good. And if I can't, I need to make some adjustments. But let's see what we can do right now, as opposed to try and pick Humpty Dumpty uh, up from, the, from falling off the wall when all the pieces can't be put together again. And, and, and I love their attitude from the standpoint of, we put a man on the moon. We put a woman on the moon. And we brought them back. What have you done as opposed to just come up with some stale sales and maybe some stale sales statistics to look at the history, but we need to be prepared for the future, which includes, I think we can all agree, the good, the bad, and the unforeseen. So let's uh, turn to this notion from Yahoo Finance that many retirees find their retirement just doesn't live up to their expectations. And what I see here, and then I'm going to ask for Daniel's comments, but uh, this is according to the uh, Employee Benefit Research Institute, looking at 2,000 retirees from 62 to 75, just conducted last year in September, that fewer than one in four think their current retirement lifestyles aligns with what they plan for their retirement to be. So that's kind of like, hey, we're going to go wherever, Hawaii, Italy, those seem to be the hot spots for Americans to visit, going to these hot spots and then discovering, oh my goodness, this isn't even what we had in mind. This is a complete disappointment. So imagine getting to the place where you are retirement and only one out of four of us, uh, it's roughly 25%, uh, are satisfied with, with what we're seeing. Uh, what seems to be the list of things that uh, people wake up to, Daniel? Well, the first one on the list is sudden fear and, and uncertainty about preparation, which I think is, is, is really a huge issue for most people. Think about retirement like, uh, like planning a trip. 
Now, when you're planning a trip, you tend you tend to spend a lot of time first on where you're going and then how you'll get there and then what you're going to do when you get there. Now, imagine instead of planning for the trip, one day, all of a sudden, you were just dropped into Hawaii. No plans on how to get there, nothing else. You just suddenly, now you're there, you're, you're on your vacation. How are, are you going to have fun? Or are you going to be nervous and fearful and, and, and wondering what's going on? That's what happens for a lot of people. They don't plan and they don't think about this in advance. They just kind of expect things will just happen for them. Social security will pick up or they're going to they're gonna work forever or things are going to happen for them. But they, they, never, they never spend any time on actually planning retirement. And it becomes, I get it from a perspective of it's a daunting task and it's overwhelming. And a lot of people don't like thinking about it. But that's well, a huge problem. Yes. And uh, by the way, folks, our, our uh, trademark, registered trademark, I'm very proud of. It says simply, the proof is in the planning. So notice this sudden fear and uncertainty about preparation means that we didn't do the best job of planning. And let's also recognize that it's just human nature, but I think it's, it's good to see the patterns that we're in because it helps to get some light on it. We spend how much time planning weddings? How much time do we plan uh, you know, for vacations, months and months and months. But when it comes to our financial future, it's like, hey, my account's up, I'm good. Or my account's down, I need to cry. Well, neither one of those is going to work. What's your target? That's, let's rally around that. What else do you see, Daniel? Second thing on this list is retirement comes sooner than anticipated. And that, that we see that happen a lot. Most people have some kind of idea on when they want to stop working. Then life gets in the way. Health, they get, they get fired, they get laid off for whatever reason, the health of a spouse or a loved one they have to take care of for whatever reason, uh, they, they have to stop working sooner than they anticipated and it throws all their, all their plans off. That's a, that is so true. I mean, may it be, it might be layoffs, it could be health issues, other reasons for, for what, like you say, life happens. So for that occurrence, like the timeline is suddenly disconnected and it's a costly mistake for people who thought their work was guaranteed and they expect it just to retire on their terms and their timeline. Uh, the reality is that it may not be on your terms and it definitely may not be on your, on your timeline. So that's why this is something that you need to review. Like maybe it depends on how you need to look at it. Some people like to look at it quarterly. Some people like to look at it semi-annually. Some people like to look at it annually, but it needs to be looked at so that you can see what are my odds for getting there. And then secondly, how am I going to, what am I going to do? What systems am I going to put in place so that I can keep my income level uh, at the level that, that works for me? If I'm stuck in, you know, just dropped off in Hawaii, I have no clothes. I guess it doesn't really matter with Hawaii, right? You need a pair of shorts and shirt, you're good. <laughs> okay. But you're probably going to get bored and you want off the island, island, uh, island fever. You want to get to be somewhere. So what, what do you think is, a, is an idea that people could do to, uh, maybe it's not all at once, what would be a, another way of um, preparing for retirement? Phasing into retirement, I think is a great option. So what we see a lot of people do is they don't stop working altogether. It's not like an on and off switch. You don't have to go from 
working today to not doing anything tomorrow. There's, there's, you can gradually get into retirement if you ever actually stop working. So that could be mean you, you're, you do, do some consulting or you take a different job or you do something less stressful than you were doing before. That may mean a decrease in income, but you're phasing into your retirement lifestyle, which tends to be an easier gradual um, change as opposed to the light switch on today, off tomorrow. Well, you know, that's funny because uh, you're making me think about a very good client that you could name and I won't, but uh, he's, what, 80 years old now? And he has this, what he calls his go-to-hell fund. I love the way he phrases it. I keep telling him is he's my mentor. And that's because every year uh, he has uh, some kind of connection that he can place. He, he, I call him a haberdasher. He worked for Levi Strauss and a number of clothing companies. But the point is, is that he always keeps his, his, his finger in the, in the pool, okay, his toe in the water. He, he's, he's always able to keep these uh, people in his wheelhouse, if you will, so that uh, there's somebody who needs to get rid of a bunch of jackets or socks or belts, and he finds the buyer, <laughs> right? And then he gets a commission from the sale. So by virtue of having twenty to $80,000 of money that just comes in on top of your social security, your pension, and the income from your investments, that's a nice place to be able to play. I, it'd be hard to be bored when you're working on your next deal, and, and it's on your terms. So I think we'll leave that conversation here. Uh, We'll take a quick break and we'll be right back after our very quick break. So please sit tight. Become our friend on Facebook. Post your thoughts about our shows and network on our timeline. Visit facebook.com forward slash voice America. At Investors Advantage Corporation, our trademark statement, the proof is in the planning, represents the value we see in hard work and perseverance, coupled with a sound plan for the future. With the challenges facing our country's frontline workers, we see a lot being asked and not a lot given in return. To reward our nation's frontline employees and clients, we're offering our financial planning services free for anyone serving in those roles. So whether you're a nurse, a member of the police force, or a retail employee, we'd love to sit down with you and help you plan for the other side of this pandemic. Please feel free to share this offer with the critical infrastructure workers you know who are providing services where they are most needed. Visit YB4.com or call us at 805-495-2077. That's YB4.com or 805-495-2077. We are located in Thousand Oaks, California. Thank you for your service and we look forward to lending a hand through your financial journey. Have you become a member yet? Sign up now to become a member of Voice America. It's always free and easy. Plus, you get to take advantage of some great member benefits. Get unlimited access to millions of hours of on-demand content across all of our channels. Keep track of your favorite episodes, shows, and hosts in your own customizable library. Find out what shows you might be interested in based on your favorites. Plus, you get insider access with our newsletter. Membership gives you more. Sign up at voiceamerica.com and click register at the top right. When it comes to business, you'll find the experts here. Voice America Business Network. You are listening to Fiscal Fitness. 
To reach the show today, please call 1-866-472-5790. That's 1-866-472-5790. You may also send an email to contact at ybpoor.com. Now, back to Fiscal Fitness. Welcome back, ladies and gentlemen. John Grayson, Daniel Medina. So glad you could spend some time with us uh, today for about uh, 60 minutes or so. And let me say that uh, we... We do some some good work here, and and we might uh, one of the things that we do for essential workers that we think is is good work is we are now providing, unlike any other financial firm that I'm aware of in the country, free financial planning to all essential workers. So, you know, we really appreciate how they are doing what they're doing to keep us safe, and this is part of their DNA. They do not have the luxury of working from home, particularly the people in the medical field. Uh, and they're putting their lives on the line every single day. So we so appreciate, we, we, we looked at each other and said, looked at our team and said, what can we do that might be the most meaningful? Taking them out to lunch, maybe that would be helpful, but not the most meaningful. The most meaningful thing we thought would be to provide a financial plan to anyone who wants one, who's an essential worker at no charge. And from what we learned, the standard fee for a financial plan in America is about $2,000. So we'll sit down with a couple or an individual for about 90 minutes and help them put the three uh, pieces to the puzzle together. First, how much money are you going to make? Are you going to need to make work optional on your terms? Like we're discussing, is it $2 million? Is it $3 million? Is it $1 million? Let's account for uh, inflation. Let's look at taxes. Let's account for any pension and give you credit for social security. By the way, that's an important thing to keep your eye on, but that's step one. Step two is regardless of who is married to whom, if you're, Two people living in the same household, you are interdependent upon each other's income. So if it is the case that one of you has the audacity to go to heaven, how is the survivor going to keep this whole thing up in the air the way the you, know, you had four hands on the equation, now you have two hands left, uh, so you know certainly two hands less, two hands left. So what are we going to do with these two hands so that whoever the survivor might be knows financially it's a non-event. Emotionally different story. But if the finances are in place, I bet you I can manage the emotions. So we want this to be a conversation, particularly, by the way, when divorces happen, we get all of this uh, froth relative to he's going to pay me, she's going to pay me $80,000 a year for the rest of my life. All right, but suppose that person dies. Did they have the last laugh? Maybe. But if you have $2 million in this case, because you want $80,000 out and 4% of $2 million is 80, if you have an insurance policy on the deceased, died prematurely, always premature, right? You know, all I have to do is present this death certificate. I get a $2 million check from the insurance company. And now I have to put this money to work at five, six, seven percent Maybe the yield might be three or 4%. If the yield's at four, uh, then that's $80,000. So the way I like to put it is, you know, I might miss you, but I'm not going to miss your money. <laughs> that's the whole point. We want you to know financially, you are just fine, not just thinking hope is a strategy. And then we will, if there are rugrats or curtain climbers or children in the equation, we want to look at how can we put together a college plan so that everybody can cry at the graduation and we're not sure if when we go to those graduations with our clients, are you crying more because they finish or are you crying more because nobody has any debt hanging over them for the rest of their lives? Okay, you're crying for both reasons. Those are good reasons. So speaking of uh, how we look at things, Daniel, you know, we, we find that many people kind of have a, 
kind of a plot line thinking. So explain what that means and how people are uh, they kind of leave themselves open to that. So I think I think what you're you said plot line. I think you meant straight line. Straight line. Yes. Thank you. So people think in absolutes. We don't think in curves. People think that things are, are they're always going to be the way they are going right now. They have things only move in straight lines. Things all go up forever or they just go down forever. I know myself personally, uh, when I think back to the beginning of the pandemic last year, those first two weeks, month were very scary. It was like, we're never leaving the house again. Things are never going to change. The world is ending. That's it. We're done. Then they turned around a little bit. And that's what usually happens. People think in straight lines. If you, if you go back to the stock market, when things look good, they look great. And people think that they're never going to change. And then it turns around. And the same thing is true on the reverse. When things are going down, that's it. My, my account's going to zero. I have to pull it all out now because it's never going to turn around again. And then it turns around. So we have to be careful of this straight line thinking because that's not the way the world works. The world works in curves. It goes up and then it goes down. And that's for all things. Well, this is so true. And I think, uh, you know, one of the things that that strikes me in terms of the reality, right, if we we look at the ups and the downs, we know that's part of the the ride, if you will. We're just trying to maybe not make it so volatile. But when we look at the Apollo moon rockets, is it true that they were off course 97% of the time, and yet they returned to Earth with pinpoint precision, safety, and timing? So what we're saying is, you know, don't get lost in well, this is the way it's always been, so that's the way it's always will be. Looking at this trajectory, like it's going to be straight line, they, they typically are not in reality. And to me, it's a very good sign to, to see that, geez, to get to the moon, uh, the rockets were off uh, 97% of the time. That's what, nearly 9.8 times out of 10? <laughs> that's, that's, pretty, that's pretty wild. And yet they were able to pull it off. So, But notice, to get from here to there, there were constant adjustments. There was a constant uh, look to see what are we doing, what do we need to do so we can get to where we want to be as opposed to someplace else. And I imagine if you're trying to get to the moon, you want to get to the moon, you do not want to be someplace else because that'd be worse than being stuck in Hawaii. (laughs) Okay, so let's look at this uh, notion of the uh, retirement bonds. Uh, as I say, it's by a friend of mine, Rick Edelman. He's a great financial advisor. I've learned a lot from him myself. And his notion is that the government should issue a bond for each newborn baby to help fund that tyke's retirement 70 years later. Huh. What an interesting idea. So he's calling this the Retirement Income Security for Everyone, or RISE, and he would like to make it a government bond program that would aim to solve two crises plaguing Americans, retirement savings and wealth inequality. He goes so far, you know, he, he, he does something that we do all the time. He's like, okay, as, as we mentioned earlier, most of us wake up like Rip Van Winkle in our mid forties going, oh, I need to save some money. So let me save a hundred dollars a month. Well, if you're, if you're doing this for the next 20 years, obviously at a hundred bucks, your contributions for 20 years will be about 24,000. And assuming that you're getting a 7% return per year, your account will grow to a whopping $52,000. Now, keep in mind, remember what we were just talking about. If you need $80,000 a year, then you need $2 million, uh, hopefully growing at 7%, but being withdrawn at 4%, 
so that you can, if you're accustomed to making 80 and now you have 80 in retirement, your lifestyle doesn't change one bit. Your standard of living remains completely stable no matter what the markets do as long as the return's higher than the withdrawal, all right? And by the way, the to keep the odds more in your favor, what we discover is that uh, that would happen in improving the odds by virtue of bringing the, the withdrawal rate down. That helps absolve, if you will, some of these market fluctuations and it helps keep the account more intact. But now let's look at, we looked at 20 years, 24,000, 7%, 52,000. We might need 80,000, which clearly $52,000 is well short of, of $2 million to retire today on an $80,000 income. But if it is the case that that same $100, which I think we'll all agree is not a whole lot of money, were to grow at 7% over an 80-year period, the contributions are only $96,000. But lo and behold, your account value would be about $4,544,000. Now, if you're in Hawaii, New York, California, wherever you might be, Italy, right, with 4.5, okay, what's, what's 4% on 4.5, Daniel? Uh, it's over that'd be... 130, one, it's over 120, that's for sure. We'll find out in real time. Yeah. So the account's growing at seven, but it, you know, if, assuming everything remains the same, and if you're withdrawing from 4.5 million at a 4% withdrawal, your income per year? 180,000 per year. $180,000 a year. That's very good. <laughs> I, I don't think anybody would be disappointed with that kind of income. And, and, and let me say just a little bit more about that, because one of the things that we've been talking about, and it, it helps put things, I think, in good relationship. If, if you went back to 1970, the household income in America, well, I believe it was 9870. This is according to the predecessor to the Census Bureau. It's now called the Census Bureau. And a new car, I happened to buy one in 1970. It was a 71 Toyota Corolla on my way to high school. It was more dependable than my godfather's gift of a 62 Corvair that uh, was free. And it leaked oil like a sieve. <laughs> so whenever I parked, I had a cardboard box flattened that I put underneath the rear engine car to catch all the oil. And I also had a case of oil that I made sure was in the trunk as well. So on the one hand, the, you know, the cardboard was good for collecting the oil. On the other hand, I had more oil to pour into this car so that I could keep rolling. But it wasn't very dependable. And so it made sense, I thought, for me to get a, a new car. Uh, and it was so happens that I found I, I wouldn't do the Vega, wouldn't do the Maverick. Okay, I'm sorry, they're they're not good. I'll go for Toyota. And, uh, they came out with a decent looking car uh, between the 70 and the 71 model. It, point is, it was all of 2176 out the door. I it was a good saver. Put in a 50 percent thousand dollars down. My payments were a whopping 3843, $38.43 a month. Remember those days? <laughs> yes, I paid the car off early. But here's the point. If, it, if the car, and that's not a Chevy Impala, it's not a Cadillac, it's not a Mercedes or a BMW, but if a decent car was $2,000 in 1970, and the income on average was $10,000, that means that the car was 20% of the average income for Americans in 1970. Today, in fact, we, we looked recently, Corollas are running around $20,000, and yet the average household income in America is about $65,000, $66,000. Many people would like us to believe that 
all is well. It's off to the races. Americans are doing five, fine. We've never seen an income level that high in history, but let's look at the reality. And this is where the rubber meets the road. Keeping that same parameter of the car costing 20% of your income, what kind of income would we need to have today, Daniel, uh, if we're trying to keep the same buying power, 20% of the amount of income? Per year, so the average income would have to be about a hundred thousand. Now, I, you know, that would that work for you? <laughs> if the average income in America was a hundred thousand dollars, I think a lot of the problems that we're having, we wouldn't be having. So, what I want to point out here is when people say that uh, you know times are tough, they are in the real world. And let's just notice the last time I looked over the last ten years, the average cost of living exceeded the average wage increase. So, for example, uh, education, uh, homes, and uh, uh, health care costs were all higher on average in rising costs than the average employee earned or enjoyed as, as an increase in income. So again, if we're making 100, now we can afford a $20,000 car with no real problem, just like we could in 1970. Uh, if, if we have $4.5 million and our income's $180,000, I mean, now I think, you know, life is good. And, and as I say, maybe we can smile a little bit more and look forward to going more places or doing more things or doing more good, or certainly having a few more hugs. But see, I think this helps understand, for example, why it is that in one study, retirees more than doubled their debt just last year. We aren't making the kind of money, and even those who are getting the jobs, we can see, for example, when we talk about, well, the, the jobless numbers are going down, that's the good news. But here's the problem. For many of us, the job we're taking today is a fraction in income of the job we had like in 2008. So it's good to see unemployment numbers go down, but we need to look more closely under the hood, if you will, uh, and in terms of, great, more people are working, but how's their lifestyle? I mean, if you were making $60,000 a year and now your next job is $40,000 a year, certainly your lifestyle is, is, is going to suffer. So I think what we've been doing in America is uh, spend baby spend and take on as much debt as you possibly can. And unfortunately, you know, when you have a first, a second, a third, for example, on a home and you miss one of those payments, it often becomes a house of cards that comes crumbling down because then you miss the next payment or one's out of cycle. And now, unfortunately, with the home value being as good as it is, the uh, chances of losing that home because we can't make the payments, the, the chances just rise and, and that's no fun. So I, I certainly like the notion that we could start planning with uh, 80 years, 60 years. Oh, and by the way, let's look at 60 years. If it's 60 years, uh, that's uh, again, $100 a month, that's a total of 72,000 over, over a 60 year period, $72,000 in, 7% is 1.1. So from 1.1, just to put things in perspective, roughly that might provide an income of about $40,000 a year. That on top of your social security, 
and maybe there's a small pension for many for some people, not as many as there used to be, but forty thousand plus less, let's say twenty or thirty thousand from Social Security. Okay, now we're at least getting back to the average standard of living in today's dollars, and hopefully those accounts will continue to grow as we're monitoring our withdrawals because it's so interesting <laughs> when we get to sit with clients and they go, oh, my account's down. Well, they forget to account for their withdrawals. <laughs> and then they want to, when we talk about the withdrawals, they're like, well, I, I, I didn't go to the moon. I didn't, we didn't go to Milan. Well, we're, we're not judging how you spent the money. What we're doing is counting the money you spent. We just want to make sure that you do that accounting to see exactly this is what you started with, this is what the market did, this is what you took. We, we, we need to look at all those numbers so that you can see what's really going on as opposed to going, oh my goodness, I, I put in 1.5, I've taken out 700,000. What do you mean I'm only left with 1.4? Well, <laughs> you took out 700,000 and that's just what the, the, the market brought you in this 10-year period or whatever the time frame we're, we might be looking at. So uh, what do you think about this idea, Daniel, uh, giving people more time to set aside uh, more money? I love the idea. I think it's unique. I think it's different. I think it's. I think we need something different to kind of solve these problems. And obviously, this isn't something that would solve problems for most, for a lot of Americans that are going to be in the problem of finding out where their income comes from when they stop working here in the next few years. But this could be something that that makes a huge difference in people's lives later. Um, uh, certainly, having a retirement bond issued at birth, and by Rick Edelman's math. Uh, he he says fifty fifty eight hundred dollar bond would make I don't know how much income this would provide later, but this that's the number that he provided that would solve the problem. I think that's I think that's very reasonable, and I love the uniqueness of the difference of the idea. And it's really just time value of money. Um, most people don't start contributing to a retirement account until their twenties or their thirties, sometimes even their forties and their fifties. And by that time, it's just too late to do it. Do it on your own. So you're relying just on Social Security and the and the the small amount you saved in your four hundred one k. But if you start saving at zero or at age one, you've got sixty years to put the money together. And if it's a retirement bond that starts at fifty eight hundred and grows to something that you could actually take significant withdrawals off later, I think that's a great idea. Well, and it, it certainly would help close the systemic gaps of income inequality, particularly for us minorities. You know, who typically earn less, have less accumulate less. And the data shows us that this is intergenerational, which means if you're born into a wealthy household, you probably will be, everybody following you is going to be pretty well off. But if you're born into a low income household, unfortunately, you probably stay there your entire life, no matter where you move. All right. So we're going to leave that there. We've got the best for the next segment. In the meantime, we have a very short break and we'll be right back. Voice America is on your favorite smart speaker. If you have Alexa or Google Home, go ahead and give us a try. Hey, Alexa, play Finding Your Frequency podcast on TuneIn. At Investors Advantage Corporation, our trademark statement, the proof is in the planning, represents the value we see in hard work and perseverance, coupled with a sound plan for the future. With the challenges facing our country's frontline workers, we see a lot being asked and not a lot given in return. To reward our nation's frontline employees and clients, we're offering our financial planning services free for anyone serving in those roles. 
So whether you're a nurse, a member of the police force, or a retail employee, we'd love to sit down with you and help you plan for the other side of this pandemic. Please feel free to share this offer with the critical infrastructure workers you know who are providing services where they are most needed. Visit YB4.com or call us at 805-495-2077. That's YB4.com or 805-495-2077. We are located in Thousand Oaks, California. Thank you for your service and we look forward to lending a hand through your financial journey. The latest business information is made simple with the Voice America Business Network. The professionals in the business world bring you live talk radio shows featuring an array of business topics, strategies for building wealth, sales and marketing, stock trading, investing, and business technology. Voice America business hosts are professionals in their fields and bring to the airwaves weekly business discussions that offer up-to-date information, advice, and education. The Voice America Business Network. The bottom line in business talk. When it comes to business, you'll find the experts here. Voice America Business Network. You are listening to Fiscal Fitness. To reach the show today, please call 1-866-472-5790. That's 1-866-472-5790. You may also send an email to contact at ybpoor.com. Now, back to Fiscal Fitness. Welcome back, folks. John Grace and Daniel Medina here at Fiscal Fitness every Wednesday between 12 and 1 Pacific time. And this is on Voice America, where we're delighted to show up just for you. So we want to talk about the. Uh, we're suggesting that folks who are looking for easy answers, we often find easy answers, but that doesn't mean we find the best answers. We're looking for easy, low-hanging fruit, and then we eat the fruit and we're satisfied. So we're saying, do the math before becoming a landlord in retirement. It seems to be one of those things that people kind of go, well, there's an easy way just to buy a piece of property and rent it out, and I've got uh, cash flow. What a wonderful thing. But there's some things that they don't take into account. And and let me just say, my parents uh, built some units behind the family home. And you know what? I looked at that home in terms of its value. Man, do I wish my parents were here so they could see what that home is worth. I think it would blow their mind. But what I noticed even as a, as growing up, they did something that I think a lot of people do. And, and I call it falling in love with your renters. <laughs> we have a lot of clients with rental properties and we see exactly the same paradigm. In other words, they're nice renters, so uh, we won't increase their rent. Now, if this was owned, if that property that you own was owned by a business, they don't think like that. <laughs> they ask, uh, they declare, uh, we're going to raise your rents as appropriate. And they do. And, and so, by the way, what I learned, thanks to my parents, is my first piece of property, thanks to my godmother, who was a realtor, was a triplex. And what I did with the people who rented uh, my property is, is sign an agreement that we agree that the rate of uh, the, the uh, rents are going to increase at the rate of inflation as declared by the LA Times every single year. So that way, I couldn't feel bad about raising the rents, right? It wasn't a subject I was afraid to raise. They weren't 
becoming complacent, knowing I'm not going to bring it up. So the rents are never going to go up. So you could just stay here and effectively the rents go below market. And, if, and what that means is I'm actually funding your lifestyle. Well, no, this is a business. So let's sign this agreement. Uh, whatever the inflation rate is, that's what the rental increase is going to be here on your anniversary. I'll bring you a flower. Thank you for uh, signing again. But the rents are going to go up to uh, take a account inflation. So, so many landlords don't look at the, the taxes, the, the tenants, the, the trash, right? And, 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 and Daniel, you see something kind of interesting uh, in terms of what they often miss. What, what is that? Sorry. <laughs> what are you alluding to, John? <laughs> well, you, you see a pattern with, with renters not uh, keeping their rents low, but I think you also see they forget to account for ordinary expenses. Yes. Um, people, don't, people don't account for the day-to-day expenses on, on their rental. So a lot of times what happens is something goes out in the house, uh, the wash machine or a light or, or something. Something needs to be repaired and they just go and do it. And that happens, I don't know if it's frequently, but it happens once in a while. And those are, those are costs that you, need to, that you need to account for if you're going to be in that business. If you're going to be a landlord, you have to make sure you know what you're spending on this house because they add up quickly. And a lot of times for most people, they don't have a lot of margin in their profit on their rent. If, they're, if their mortgage is a thousand bucks and they're renting out at 1500, then that's $500 in profit, not including taxes, not including maintenance, not including whatever other expenses they have to get to, to maintain the property. So their margin isn't that, isn't that large. So if you have a, a one-time expense of a water heater or a roof, that could wipe out your profits for the year or two or three. Well, and they don't do the math to account for these costs that they maybe it was once or twice and then they kind of forget about it, right? And, and then if they do the work themselves, what do they think of? Oh, look at all the money they save. But let's understand if you were to pay someone to do that work, that would be a cost. So do you build that expense into your expenses? No matter who's doing the job, this would typically be a cost that you would have to bear. And if you weren't able to do this work yourself, clearly that would be a cost that you that you do bear. So I, I, I'm glad I started with a piece of rental property. I'm, I'm, I'm so glad my godmother had me get going. And, and by the way, that was a 24. Uh, and that's interesting because the average age at which most Americans buy their first house is 31. So she had, <laughs> she had uh, certainly seeded me with, yes, grand godmother, I'm saving for a house, yes, I'm sure you will find it. And yes, I will buy it. And that's exactly what I did. And I got launched. But you know what, folks? I probably will never do it again. It was so much fun that uh, I will always remember the good times. Thankfully, I won't remember uh, some of my friends had toilet, or I'm sorry, uh, cement put in their toilets. I'm thinking of a friend of mine right now in Kentucky where he had 30 rentals, 30. And then all of a sudden he Here's this long, hard knock on his door, about 6.10, one weekday morning, and he opens the door, and guess who's on his lawn? It's the Department of Health, it's the police department, it's the sheriffs, everybody is standing on his front lawn. And he's like, what the heck happened? And, and it took him a while to discover what happened, but the story is that one of his renters was, guess what? Uh, mixing some kind of drugs in one of the rentals and guess who the state of Kentucky holds responsible for that behavior? That would be the owner. 
<laughs> so he he certainly unraveled that experience as quickly as he possibly can. And he says, you know, I probably had, this is maybe 20 years ago, $300,000 worth of uh, equity in these properties at the time. That was my road, one of my roads to retirement. I, I have several. In fact, he's a, he's a peer, so he has several roads to get to the same location. We think that's smart. But he says, I unraveled that so quickly. The, the, the cost of the defense, the attorneys I had to hire, was about the same as my equity. So <laughs> thank goodness the equity was there, but the equity was gone just to pay the attorney's fees. So that's my point. Don't just look at this blind and go, this is easy. It might be, it might not, but often the benefits are overstated and the risks are minimized. So we see that there are between eight to 11 million private landlords in the US. We hope that most of them had uh, great experiences, but we want you prepared as we say all the time to be ready for the good, the bad, and the, and the, uh, and the unforeseen. And many times it's just the greater cost, the risks, the hassles, uh, some risks can be serious, leading to legal liabilities, like we discussed, and major capital expenses. Being a landlord can certainly take up a lot of your time that you don't account for and provide plenty of grounds for stress as you're dealing with the, with the tenants. Uh, we, we were talking, Daniel and I, with one very good client, and she was complaining about her niece, the tenant, and how much um, heck the tenant was giving her. And it's just going on and on and on. And finally, I said, well, when do you want to be out of this business? She says, what do you mean? I said, well, are you willing to sell the property? She says, you know what? I never thought of that. So now she has, and she's glad she did, just because she didn't want the job. It was, it was not an adventure. <laughs> so, you know, tickles can be fickle. Uh, they can have one bad. You can, hire, you can have one tenant who's bad to the next one who sours the experience. They shred your margins. Uh, they give the eviction moratoriums we've seen. And then, you know, weather changes or uh, health events change. And now all of a sudden, you can't collect those rents, right? Uh, they're supposed to be held in abeyance. And maybe it'll be three, four, five months where you can collect the rents, but you can't evict the tenants. I'm sorry, that would not feel like fun to me. So we find that so many landlords just completely underestimate the cost associated with owning a real, uh, real, owning real estate directly. Uh, as I say, that's the uh, homeowner's insurance, umbrella insurance, protect against liability, uh, tenant issues, property taxes, repairs, as Daniel talked about, maintenance costs. That's always interesting to me. They, people just, somehow that just disappears in their checkbook and out of their minds. They, they, they don't look at what it costs to update the property. And of course, uh, the income taxes. And then, you know, you come across a catastrophic weather event uh, like this year's big freeze in many, of the, many parts of the country. In fact, I was talking to a friend of mine who's in Houston with a rental where he finds there are 15 water line breaks in one house. 15. <laughs> well, I'm sorry, that doesn't sound like fun to me. So we're just trying to make sure that folks really pay attention to the decisions that they're making, that they don't just get stuck in one domain, uh, look at these uh, straight line graphs that, you know, only uh, everything's going up straight to the moon, and then you wake up and something has happened, um, and it's, it's turned around very deliberately and, and certainly very painfully. Uh, and then you want to look at your average returns. Are they at market? Uh, because we see some folks that are looking at the rents, 
but not looking at whether or not the there is appreciation. And sometimes maybe it needs the property needs to be relocated, or you know you need to sell this one buy another one, so that the um, if there is appreciation, it's in an area where there is more appreciation as opposed to less, and just being again very complacent. Speaking of complacency, I think the good way to look at it is listening to one of the pandemic doctors, right, on this COVID-19. And he said the problem with optimism, right, that I'm going to be optimistic. He said the problem with optimistic, and I think he's right, is that it leads to complacency. So we kind of get like Rip Van Winkle where we go to sleep and maybe wake up and everything's just fine. But if we become like that proverbial ostrich where we're not looking at what's actually going on in real time, we are bending over and revealing some very dear parts, which is certainly not my idea of fun. So anything we're missing here about the being a landlord, Daniel? Well, I wanted to go back to, you mentioned falling in love with your renters. And that's, I mean, I can't understate this enough. That happens 100% of the time, it seems. I know my parents did the same thing. And what they what they did is they bought a house as, a, as an investment. They rented it to a friend. And uh, this is a friend of the family. And they never raised the rent. So here we are 10 years later, and they're still at the exact same rent where they started. And they're a friend and they're a good renter and they take care of the property. So you never want to raise it. But end of the day, what you're doing is you're subsidizing their rent and you're essentially giving them that money in their pocket every month for nothing. Well, and we're talking about being complacent, right? That's what my parents did. And then along come rent control. So as soon as somebody says, hey, uh, Mr. And Mrs. Grace, you know, you really ought to raise your rents uh, some, with some frequency. And then along comes rent control. And guess what? Now they can't. Now you can't. <laughs> Are we having fun yet? Uh, I think we were trying to make this a business. What do you mean I can't raise the rent? You must be out of your mind. Well, that's the law. Do you want to be sued? No. Okay. Then keep your rents the way they've been for the last 10 years. <laughs> <laughs> I think that's a huge problem for most people. And if you look at if you look at the kind of the rental market, it used to be that it was only individuals that owned single family as rentals. Now there's a lot more companies that are that have got into it. And that was really due to the financial crisis in 2008 and, and, and large REITs coming in and buying up properties. And they, they actually do raise rents, which is one of the reasons, particularly here in LA, we've seen huge increases in rental in rentals over the last what uh, 10, 10, 11 years. Yeah, think, and go ahead. Well, what I was going to say before we close oh. here, there's there's a second big problem I think that that a lot of individuals um, do when they're when they're buying investment properties, and it's really it's concentration risk. What they end up doing is buying rentals in the same area that they live, which is logical. From a logistics standpoint, you and have to maintain the property. It's comfortable. You have to watch the property. So you have to check it out. So you want it to be close and you want to be able to go look at your look at your investment and, and, and talk to your renters and collect your rent. But then you're you're running the risk of something happening happening that's localized to your area that's going to affect your whole market. If you're like gonna an be in, like an earthquake, <laughs> as an example, if you're gonna be in the business of real estate, you have to think of it as a business. And one of those very important things in business is diversifying your income streams and diversifying your investments. You want to have it in different areas. So you're not with concentration risk and having all your investments in one area, you want to take that that little equation out. Well, I, I want to say real quickly that we think in 07 through 09, the stopgap to prices, I think they were off like 34%, if I'm not mistaken. Uh, but the stopgap to prices going even lower were the companies that stepped in with cash and bought properties they've never seen. Here's the real question. When do they decide to sell? 
do you want to be trying to sell as they're selling? They have no emotional attachment. It's simply a business decision. And if it's profitable, they could sell in mass at any time. So I, I would hate to try and be uh, trying to sell my property at the same time uh, this industry is effectively unloading real estate because they've decided to go in a different direction. And how would you know that until you read about it in the paper? All right, folks. Well, thank you so much for joining us. We're going to leave it there. Uh, this is John Grace and Daniel Medina at Fiscal Fitness on Voice America. Please stay safe. Please get your vaccinations. All right. Uh, let's survive and thrive. We will see you right here next week, Wednesday from 12 to 1 on Voice America. Thank you for tuning to Fiscal Fitness. Please join John Grace and co-host Daniel Medina again next Wednesday at 3 p.m. Eastern Time and 12 noon Pacific Time on the Voice America Business Channel. Have an excellent week.